for the proponents of privacy and open networks to win becomes a matter of making the technology easy to use, too costly to stamp out, and well understood by the public. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we've got another great piece by none other than Lynn Alden on the show today. This is on the Swan Bitcoin blog. Uh, like I always say, uh, Swan Bitcoin, I mean, not only are they a sponsor of the show, but they are a remarkable source for... Um, I mean, just a lot of great writing. I'm a, a big fan of their blog. There's like, there's probably like seven or eight blogs that I really, really rely on. And Swan is definitely one of them. But Lynn has write, been writing for them a lot recently. And this is a really great piece that was recommended to me on Noster. Uh, the implications of open monetary and information networks. And it, she goes into a lot of the things that we've talked about Um. Uh, recently, just in various aspects, and kind of lays out both the foundations of the old world, of the closed financial system and the closed, monet- uh, closed uh, uh, social and information networks that we've been using, kind of how we got there, and then what Bitcoin and Noster and Keat and these things are doing to open them up, and what that potentially implies about our future. And importantly, what do we do to ensure that path is successful? Now, I'm a little low on time today, so we are just going to, we're going to break this up into two pieces, um, and I'm going to try to do a guy's take afterward, but I hope to have part two released tomorrow, but I don't think I'll have a guy's take. It's my birthday tomorrow, and uh, the me and the family are going to hang out, and I'm going to work on bunch of bitcoin hardware and construction and my home mining setup and stuff downstairs so i've been meaning and really wanting to take a day to really dive back into that so we will have part two but i will most likely not have the guys take done for it but i promise you you are going to really really enjoy this piece lynn alden is always a must listen or must read uh, whenever she publishes I'll have a link to the Swan Bitcoin blog so that you can check out the other stuff that these she's published up there, um, and also a link to follow her on uh, uh, Twitter and Noster. With that, before we jump in, I want to thank our amazing sponsors. We've got CoinKite and the Cold Card Hardware Wallet. Do not forget that you can uh, pre-order uh, for the lowest price that they know they will, they're trying to keep the price, but they don't know. Uh, you can pre-order the Cold Card Q1, the new one with the larger screen with the camera, the two SD cards. I have already pre-ordered mine, so just a heads up. And if you were getting the Cold Card Mark IV, Mark III, any of the other devices, don't forget to use uh, code Bitcoin Audible for nine percent off. And of course, Swan Bitcoin for they their brand new Bitcoin IRA. If you've got a savings account or a retirement account that's still stuck in fiat and you've been really wanting to get it exposed to bitcoin this is when you get in contact with swan bitcoin go check them out 
my page, swanbitcoin.com slash guy. We'll take you there. You'll find out, you'll find everything you need. And last but not least, fold the best way to stack sats on every freaking thing that you do with fiat. It's magic. It's, it's literally like magic. And you get 20,000 sats free just for going to my link, bitcoinaudible.com slash fold. And lucky for you, it's right in the show notes. And with that, let's dive into today's read. And it's titled, The Implications of Open Monetary and Information Networks. For proponents of privacy and open networks to win becomes a matter of making the technology easy to use, too costly to stamp out, and well understood by the public. Written by Lynn Alden Recent decades have been characterized primarily by closed systems, both financially and online. The financial system as we know it has been a rather closed system for ages, consisting of various silos. Banks and brokerages operate permissioned ledgers. Opening accounts with institutions is a permissioned activity. Sending assets between institutions is a permissioned activity domestically and especially globally. The base currency itself has a central issuer. The internet had many open aspects early on and still does, but it largely consolidated into silos over time. Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and platforms like these are closed networks. Opening accounts with them is a permissioned activity. How you use them is a permissioned activity. And sending information between these platforms has generally not been possible. How exactly do their algorithms work? Since most of them are closed, we can't know. Today, open monetary protocols, for example Bitcoin, as well as the emergence of newer open information protocols, for example Noster, challenge this state of affairs and or present alternative parallel systems for which people globally can use, explore, and build on. This article examines some of the prospects and potential implications of their adoption. Closed Source Money Bank accounts give users access to the traditional globally connected banking system. A global network of interconnected banks allow for domestic and global money exchange, with varying amounts of settlement time for those transactions. In recent decades, various fintech companies have developed as layers on top of traditional banking rails to modernize and quicken the process of sending money. Contrary to popular perception, these types of companies aren't going around banks or competing with banks. They are layers on top of the existing banking apparatus that still make use of various banks with central bank connections, but in a way that abstracts the experience from the user. With credit cards, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and others, an increasing number of methods to move around small or medium amounts of money have greatly decreased digital payment times from the user perspective. Behind the scenes, however, there is still a complex and slow back-end financial handshaking process that occurs along the way, as various intermediate financial institutions take on temporary credit. In other words, when a small fintech payment seems instantly finished from the user perspective, the banks in the background are still spending hours or days finalizing it behind the curtain in larger batches, and thus holding IOUs to each other in the process. 
Reliably sending global payments is much more burdensome, slow, and expensive. Wire transfers often get caught up and delayed in opaque ways. Many fintech services are only available in one economic block, such as the United States, and have no ability to send foreign payments. To the extent that a bank or service allows for global payments, it can feel like a stressful event each time, as you wonder if it will go through or get blocked for some arcane reason and need to be reattempted, thus wasting time. My local credit union used to offer international wire transfers by piggybacking on Bank of America for the infrastructure, and for quite a hefty fee, but now no longer does. I have to use my big bank account now when sending global wires. There's an unfortunate problem for global payments. Small transactions tend to have the highest percent fees, and their payees and recipients can least afford it. Many people in developing countries travel internationally for work and send money home to their families in small amounts, with intermediaries collecting high fees and not innovating quickly or at all to reduce them, and with little incentive to do so. According to the World Bank, the average fee percentage on a remittance payment is 6.3%. When sending remittance payments directly to banks, the fee percentage is 11.7%. Fintech companies and mobile payment solutions are responsible for lowering the average, but the average is still very high. Globally, only about 76% of people have an account at a bank or at a fintech platform that connects to a bank. In many countries and regions, the numbers remain very low. In Nigeria, for example, only 45% of people have an account. In Palestine, only 34% do. Having a physical bank branch is expensive, and providing manual customer service comes with substantial overhead costs. If someone has a few hundred dollars, it is usually not worth the bank's time to give them an account. According to the World Bank, 75 countries also still have restrictions on women's rights to manage assets. So in addition to technical or monopoly-like problems with sending or holding money, there are some social bottlenecks as well. Furthermore, many people aren't aware of the problematic combination of refugees and banking. Banking is a centralized and permissioned activity, governed by a nation's central bank with tight regulation. This almost always involves mandating that the banks collect identification on customers. However, many refugees from impoverished or war-torn regions don't have IDs and don't have a clear or convenient path towards getting one, depending on the jurisdiction they fled to. The problem is further compounded if they don't have enough money or income for a bank to care. Meanwhile, over 86% of people, over 7.1 billion people, have a smartphone globally, and the percentage is rising quickly. The proliferation and exponential nature of technology have allowed smartphone usage to leapfrog banking access in many areas. Phone and mobile internet adoption are expected to continue to spread into poorer and poorer areas over the next five and ten years. People who work in what society considers to be undesirable industries often have trouble getting banked or tend to get debanked, including by fintech companies, after already being banked. Even the mere process of spreading information can lead to debanking, such as the well-known case of WikiLeaks losing its fintech payment platform access in 2010. 
If a protest is considered unacceptable, whether it's in Nigeria or Canada or wherever else, protesters may have their bank accounts frozen, donations to protesters may be frozen or reversed, and even those making donations may find their financial access frozen. And we must consider this from a global perspective. Billions of people live in authoritarian countries, and the number is not improving. Open Source Money For decades since at least the early 1980s, cryptographers and cypherpunks researched ways to build internet-native monies that go around the banking system. Many early implementations were centralized and thus either failed to accrue a network effect and stagnated into bankruptcy, or were actively shut down by the government. In 2009, Satoshi Nakamoto built on prior work and launched what has thus far been the most successful open-source monetary network, Bitcoin. For 14 years and counting, it has provided an open, yet still rather niche, payments and savings network to anyone with an internet connection, and in a way that has thus far been able to maintain decentralization and resistance to censorship. A subset of analysts around the world continue to examine it to determine, one, whether it will continue to exist and remain functional, and two, what implications it may have if it does. Nobody can reverse or censor transactions by decree. The only way to do so is to gain 51% of the network's processing power and override the rest of the network. And since it's an open-source network with nobody in charge, anyone with the physical capability to do so can interact with it in various ways. A user can run a free open-source node client and participate in running the network, sending permissionless payments and auditing details of the protocol. Without even using software, a user can generate a private key by flipping a coin 256 times and use it to receive Bitcoin as payments. A user can memorize 12 words, travel across the world, and be able to reconstruct their ability to access their Bitcoin at a later date. A programmer can make a non-custodial wallet application that interfaces with the network and makes interacting with it easier for a non-technical user. A financial services company can operate as a custodian or as a collaborative custody provider that holds a one-of-three backup key in a multi-signature arrangement while the user holds two of three keys. When we look at a closed monetary network, such as the Federal Reserve System, it is strictly hierarchical. The underlying settlement networks, such as Fedwire, are only accessible to banks. To the extent that a user wants to make use of it, they can do so indirectly, by being a customer at a bank or a fintech company that connects to a bank. To the extent that a fintech developer or a new bank figures out a way to make access to the network better, they can only do so with permission, by being granted access to a bank and following all regulations, which vary by jurisdiction. The recent denial of Custodia Bank's application is a recent example to show how permissioned and hierarchical the system is. An open monetary network works differently. Users can directly access the network if they want to, or they can go through larger platforms that make various trade-offs for the sake of convenience. Furthermore, people can directly interact with whatever part of the stack that suits their specific needs at a specific time, such as the base layer or software layers on top of it, for example, Lightning. 
any developer can create a new way to interface with it or a new layer on top of it and offer it into the global marketplace without waiting for an application to a centralized authority to be approved. Closed Source Social Media On its surface, the internet seems reasonably decentralized. A consistent protocol stack built around internet protocol is used around the world, and on top of that protocol stack, there are various websites or other types of servers, and there are multiple different methods to access them. For example, different operating systems, browser applications, and so forth. The way that people tend to use it, however, has become quite controllable and siloed. The rise of major social media platforms like Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, and others consolidated many users into big pools of connectivity. Rather than everyone making their own websites, most users create accounts on big platforms and thus subject themselves to the various rules and algorithms of that platform in exchange for the convenience and access that those platforms provide. Billions of people congregate around these pools of activity, which are offered for free in exchange for harvesting all of their data. Small and separately run internet forum websites used to be popular, but these have tended to consolidate towards subsections of major social media platforms. To the extent that people search for new websites, it's dominated by Google's search algorithm. A Twitter user can't send a direct message to a Facebook user. A LinkedIn user can't bring their followers with them if they create a Twitter account. They all tend to be siloed. Those platforms then use various private algorithms to determine what information gets shown to users and have discretion around content moderation policies to remove posts or entire accounts as they deem fit or as required by their government. We can imagine this from a corporate, government, and user perspective and see what each one is trying to maximize for. From a corporation's perspective, they need to be able to remove illegal activity or outright spam so that they can comply with laws and so that their platform doesn't run into a tragedy of the commons. They also need to tune their algorithm in such a way that it gives people the connections that make sense to them and keep them on the platform rather than going elsewhere. From a government's perspective, people act very differently online than offline. They are more impersonal, more aggressive, and easier to manipulate with fake data, including via foreign agents, when online. Algorithms, if properly tuned, can feed a billion people more of what makes them emotional from people who are already in their digital tribe, and thus close them off from each other and repeatedly exaggerate public outrage in recurring waves. From a user's perspective, government and corporate power over moderation is prone to corruption. A government can demand a takedown of information that is inconvenient to them or that doesn't fit their preferred narrative. Corporations can exacerbate outrage and user emotions if it translates into more dollars at the end of the day. Much like the military-industrial complex that has been around for decades, there is a political finance media complex as well. India, as a very large but relatively mild example, has established a track record of telling Twitter, YouTube, and other platforms to remove information that is unfavorable to their current administration. And those platforms comply. In many countries that are more restrictive, social media platforms are completely controlled or banned, leaving their population in the dark and disconnected from the rest of the world. Even private messages can be read by those in power. 
Some platforms use unencrypted direct messages. Other platforms claim to use encrypted direct messages, but there's no way for a user to prove that they are really encrypted. Unencrypted messages can be read by insiders at the corporation, by government agents requesting such information, or by hackers that can, and often do, get illegal access to them. A user cannot audit the way that a platform's closed-source algorithm works. A Facebook user cannot send a direct message to a Twitter user. If an account is frozen or removed, a user can appeal but otherwise has no recourse. If social media is not allowed in a country, people have their information and connectivity greatly reduced and controlled by centralized forces. Open Source Social Media People have been trying to make more decentralized internet and social media experiences for a while. But it's hard to compete with the network effects that the big centralized ones have established. A centralized server tends to be very efficient and self-reinforcing. And so centralized solutions get deployed, get the initial users, and thus entrench themselves for decades. One of the ways to decentralize the internet is to normalize running a home server and to make it easier to do so. As technology improves, basic server-grade computers have become more accessible, and a number of hardware and software solutions have come into existence that is geared toward a consumer server market. However, there are still long-term limitations on people's interest or financial ability to run a server. The financial and bandwidth constraints are particularly problematic for potential users in developing countries. On the other hand, some technologies enable more peer-to-peer -peer information transfer. File sharing, video calls, and things like that can allow people to connect to each other in high-bandwidth ways. Keat, for example, is far faster and higher resolution than Zoom for video chats involving modest amounts of people. A challenge with pure peer-to-peer -peer models is that both users have to be online at the same time to coordinate. A middle ground method that seems to be beginning to work at scale is the idea of distributed servers or relays. In this model, not every user has to run a server, but individual servers are relatively easy to run, are financially incentivized to be run, and are therefore numerous enough that there is no way to control or censor the network. The result is a rather decentralized web of servers that connect to each other and users that connect to them. A good example of this is Noster. It's an open source protocol that stands for Notes and Other Stuff Transmitted by Relays. For the first two years of its existence, it was relatively unused, but in 2022, it started to get more traction. By the end of the year and into early 2023, thanks to efforts by Jack Dorsey and others, it started to gain some serious adoption. On top of Noster, anyone can build a client application for it. Users of different clients can see each other's posts and send messages to each other. A person can use different clients over time and still have access to their followers. One client might look a lot like Twitter. Another client might look kind of like Telegram. So far, clients that look like Twitter have been the preferred client type. The closest analogy is also perhaps to compare it to email. People who use Gmail, Yahoo, Hotmail, AOL, and various individual webmail services can all send emails to each other regardless of which service they use. This is because they are all built on the same underlying set of protocols and are not closed or siloed systems. 
Similarly, Noster is an underlying open-source social media publishing protocol that people can build clients for. People have made Twitter clone clients, Telegram clone clients, desktop clients, and mobile clients for Noster, and they are all compatible with each other. A nice attribute of this model is that if somebody has a really good idea for a new type of social media platform, they don't have to worry about network effects. They can create a new experience, meaning a new client interface, connect it right into the Noster protocol, and make it interoperable right from the start with every other Noster user across existing clients. They can make use of the existing network effect, in a similar way that any new browser or new email provider makes use of the extensive network effect that already exists for those protocols. And it can extend beyond social media. Jack Dorsey has stressed this idea and pointed out, for example, that it could be used as a GitHub replacement. The anonymous computer scientist and author Gigi has referred to it as, quote, an identity and reputation layer. Willie Wu described it as everything Twitter wanted in its early years with an open API. Elizabeth Stark, CEO of Lightning Labs, pointed beyond Twitter clones and wrote that, quote, an open messaging protocol means that you can build things that weren't previously possible in the old walled garden centralized paradigm. To use Noster, you generate a public and private key pair in one of multiple ways. Most clients can do this for you, and third-party applications like Albi can do this for you. You keep the private key secret, and the public key is your username that you share with other people. There is no central server or relay, and instead many individual users run relays. Users can pick which relays they connect to, and relay operators can ban certain users from their relay. Users publish material to multiple relays, and relays transmit and store that material with discretion by relay operators about which material they choose to transmit and store on their particular relay. Noster makes native use of the Bitcoin and Lightning network without being built on it. Users can easily tip each other with Lightning transactions or pay premium relay operators with Lightning payments in order to use those relays instead of the various free ones. Other paid services can be offered over Noster as well. The combination of public key cryptography and distributed servers means that no central entity can censor anyone or ban anyone from the protocol, in a similar way that nobody can be banned from email. A government can target and shut down individual relays in their jurisdictions, but there could be quite a number of them, and individuals around the world can run relays, and users can connect to relays in other jurisdictions. Individual relay operators can choose to exclude things, and if users want to exclude certain things, they can stick with those more exclusive relays. Some relays can operate for free, and other ones can charge a small fee. Different client applications can configure different settings or appearances, and users can determine which clients to use, and use multiple different clients. It also means that some of the user experience is a bit clunky at the moment. If a user doesn't connect to good relays, the speed will be slow and some data will be incomplete, like seeing posts but being unable to see the posts that they are in response to. It's not easy to track down how many followers you precisely have or how many likes a particular post really gets. Users have to be careful about which clients to trust. If you insert your private key into a scammy client, they can use it to capture your protocol-wide Noster digital identity. The bandwidth usage in practice is rather high, 
particularly for developing country internet infrastructure. There's been a priority on making things work more than making things efficient. I expect that some of the clunky aspects will be smoothed out over time. At the moment, the ecosystem is basically devoid of capital with a handful of people working on it, and yet it's already quite impressive as it is. It looks like a powerful set of individual building blocks coming together. It's really early. Even the bearish case for this technology is to say that it is something that will exist now but remain niche, and thus is a new tool that is usable by the people that need it. What applications require global consensus? Okay, we're going to pause right there for today, uh, and we will come back to this tomorrow because this whole global consensus section is not only really good because I, I think this is like a huge misunderstanding, particularly in the crypto space, as to why we don't need all of these new consensus mechanisms, and there's a couple of good analogies that I want to dig into in a guy's take following this piece. And uh, she does a really good job, Lynn does a really good job of laying out kind of the, the various aspects of consensus in the various realms of kind of technological um, networking technologies like identity, reputation, money, those sorts of things, and just kind of breaks them down piece by piece. So it's a really, really good section, and I don't want to get halfway into it and then have to stop. So we will come back to that tomorrow. Now, one of the reasons I was really excited to dig into this piece was just because, first off, Lynn Alden always has a great way of just kind of wrapping the entire argument, is laying out very concisely the the major pieces of the puzzle, and then juxtaposing the new solution or the new perspective and then laying out exactly why or how it might work and even some reasons why it might not like where are the major challenges um and she does particularly in the consensus area of this article in part two she does a really good job hitting a couple of things that i'm definitely going to want to expand on in the guy's take uh whether or not it is in the part two episode or in kind of a follow-up uh, show. But just in thinking about comparable protocols, when, uh, like, Lynn uses the example when bringing up Noster and open information protocols of uh, email. And one of the examples that I've used in the past, uh, I think I used it on the Noster episode that we did not too long ago, was RSS feeds, was... Um, was podcasts. But just from a historical standpoint, from like the development of the internet, it's really interesting to me how we started, we, what we did is we evolved in the way that we communicated and exactly what type of information we were trying to signal to each other. And social media was such an interesting development because it wasn't that much like we did have a lot of information protocols you think about it like from the context of a number of different things it's not a whole lot unlike email it's like a bunch of big elaborate email chains or something you know where like you're just constantly blasting out to all of your followers except that or you're you're blasting out to like your mailing list, right? Except that there's a difference because you're 
you're not the one building the mailing list. The follower is. The, the user is the one be- building the mailing list. So like when I'm following people online or on any sort of social media, I am the one that goes and chooses to listen to their feed. And then just in the way it's displayed and how you interact with it, because I'm specifically going to a thing and they make a remark or a post or an image and I'm publicly signaling that I like this thing. And then I'm sharing it with the people in my feed as if I'm forwarding the email to a new list, a new mailing list of people that have been built up around, uh, around following what I'm interested in. And it's so crazy to think that there's just these like subtle differences in how we relate to the content that have such a huge impact on what the content means. And that we did not essentially expand out any information protocols when clearly we had the capacity to. I mean, if you think about what podcasting is with RSS feeds and that space of communicating information, and then you think about email, and you think about TCP IP, and you think about BitTorrent and social, uh, file sharing and all of these things, we've really had all the pieces of the puzzle. Probably the biggest thing to figure out was identity, in a sense, which Lynn gets to a little bit more specifically in the consensus section of this article, and also why blockchains never really made sense. Like, we don't have a problem communicating information. We have a problem communicating integrity and achieving consensus. Those two things are really important, and those two things are insanely difficult from a digital information perspective, which is what proof of work and the blockchain system was able to achieve. But we didn't need that in our information systems. We didn't need that in just trying to communicate data. We actually have really clever and fascinating protocols when it comes to decentralized and peer-to-peer data transfer. It's just that the closed systems were able to innovate and they created this this unique environment that was so enticing and was so much better at distilling exactly what sort of social filtering and signaling that we did in our community groups and how could we translate that into the digital space, which just made an entirely new environment. And then we siloed. We saw, they, they, they trapped us into it and provided it to us for free and billions of users flooded on and suddenly this was just a treasure trove of data. Everybody, all the users are making all the content, all the users are communicating, they're keeping perfect records of who they interact with, who is close in my, who's my close circle of friends, who's my associates, like what all of our political opinions are, the things that we like, the stuff that we buy, we're logging into our other websites, our banking institution and all of these things get connected to it. Like it just became this massive thing. I mean, it became 1984 on steroids in a way that they could never even have hoped because we gave it to them. But it was purely out of the excitement of this social engagement this, this new layer of engagement that we could have in the digital space, which 
was so impersonal, and it still is impersonal, but social media added a new layer to it, which is why it was so enticing, because we are purely and completely social beings, like we really are. But none of these problems are actually inherent to the task of creating a social landscape, of creating a way to have persistent identities and to connect to each other in this way. There's no inherent limitation here other than the fact that we have these massive network lock-ins and essentially an uphill battle to undo the network effect and essentially rebuild a lot of these tools that these other proprietary closed systems have built that we can't really use. You know, it's, it's clearly not the open source society over there. Well, that's why there's this bit of a serendipitous thing. And, and, you know, maybe it's just that it's not until the pressure, the pressure of the, of the corruption and the trade-offs inherent in a centralized solution that has a massive network effect. It seems inevitable that it gets abused at some point. If it becomes a network like that is so unbelievably powerful. And you think about it, it's kind of abused from the outset, actually, because... We're given it for free as a means to harvest us for a resource that is then sold to their associates, our data. And it's really just a matter of the timeline in regards to how badly it is abused and how much damage it ends up doing to us. So I don't know if it's more a... The pressure just builds maybe from a political side... And we become more aware of the technology and there's this slow kind of, you know, boiling of the frog and some people just kind of wake up and realize that this is a serious problem that needs to get addressed. Or maybe it's just that the technology gets to a point where we have this ability to, we kind of have this easily accessible hardware and bandwidth and internet connectivity that we didn't have, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And suddenly these things are possible in a different way. And we actually can, you know, do this coordination. Or maybe it's just, you know, 2020 was such a perfect example of seeing that trade-off taken to an absolute extreme. You know, maybe, maybe 2020 is kind of an example of while we were all boiling frogs, the temperature jumped too quickly and too much in a very short period of time for a lot of us to go, holy crap, the water is really, really hot and we need to figure out how to get out of this thing. But regardless, it's just kind of fascinating that at the time that it is most needed, we have so many solutions kind of landing at the exact same time for this very problem. And, you know, thinking of the market and humanity as an insanely complex society, like a collective organism of sorts, it's probably just kind of a combination of all of it and almost necessarily has to be, but it's still crazy. But we, I'm gonna have to close this one out here. I'm, I'm out of time. And I'm still hoping, fingers crossed, that I can get part two out uh, tomorrow. So thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you, everybody, also, who gave me some happy birthday wishes on Noster. Um, I am going to try to take tomorrow to relax, but I know I'm just going to kind of want to 
still do all the Bitcoin things and still do the stuff for the show. Um, especially because I'm still way behind on a couple of things. And I don't know, like when I have free time, it's hard. It's hard to just chill. But I'm going to try. I'm going to take it. I'm going to try to work on my hardware, try to work on my mining setup, and you know, maybe make some fun video stuff for you guys. Links to all of our amazing sponsors are in the show notes, right there in the description of this podcast. If you're in the Fountain app, if you're in Spotify, wherever you're listening to this, right there in the description, you'll find CoinKite and the cold card where you can pre-order the Q1 or you can get your Mark IV if you still don't have one of those. Or a tap signer or the sats card they have the open dime they have so many amazing products best in the bitcoin hardware and security solutions and nine percent off with code bitcoin audible and swan bitcoin for just onboarding getting your retirement getting your business getting a concierge service getting the most knowledgeable team in the space it produces writing like lynn alden does here on this blog great piece today Thank you to them. They've been a longtime supporter of the show, and I have been a longtime user of their service. And then Fold. You guys know I love Fold. I get my sats back. I spent I'm gonna spend my fold card first thing in the morning on my birthday. I feel like I feel like it's gonna be good. Wish me luck that I get lots of good sats. L- lots of sats on my daily sats. I will catch you on the next episode of Bitcoin Audible. And until then, everybody, take it easy, guys. There are times when the world is rearranging itself. And at times like that, the right words can change the world. Orson Scott Card, Ender's Game. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.